The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit twiddling your bits and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 246 with guests Stephen Forte, Kent Alstadt, Rob Howard, and Steve Smith. Recorded live at TechEd Wednesday, June 6th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter and now bring the asp.net masterclass on site for your development team online at www.franklins.net support is also provided by telerik combining the best in windows forms and asp.net controls with first class customer service online at www.telerik.com and by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who has to keep telling people he did not win the regurgitated Donut of the Year award, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is uh, Carl Franklin on the east coast of the United States of America and on the west coast of Canada, Richard Campbell. Hello, sir. How are you today? Another day, another show. Well, and what a great show, too. This is the first of our TechEd shows. Yeah. And this was, uh, you know, what was fun about TechEd is that you we got to just do what we wanted on the stage. Pretty much. So, so we organized some panel discussions and you pretty much took the ball and ran with it. You said, you know what? I'm going to find some smart people, get them up on the stage, give them some microphones. We'll see if we can draw a crowd. And funny, most of the negotiations for the concept of the show took place in the bar. Yeah. So, we, you know, we in the end, we got three. This one that's coming up, which is the ASP.NET scalability show. Right. And then there's a VSTS show. And then the identity show. Now, just a, a disclaimer, because, you know, people know us for our great sound quality. Yeah. The sound quality isn't the best. Yeah, and I admit, you are particular, though. You'll be able to understand the words, but it was, the microphones were lavalier microphones. We were on stage, and it was EQ'd for PA. Right. Uh, and there wasn't a whole lot of balance going on, so some people are quieter than others, and some sound a little distorted and everything, but you'll be able to hear what's going on, which I think is the main thing. And the reality is this was a live show. We were on a stage. We had an audience in an enormous hall. Right. And mostly we were concerned about feedback. Right. Not concerned about beautiful recording. And, you know, Pop wasn't really controlling the sound from a recording standpoint. We just yeah. got a feed, a mono feed off the board. So, oh, well. Yeah, what we got is what we got. What we got is what we got. But the discussion was awesome. Yes, it was. And before we get to that, uh, let's do 
Yeah, the aptly named by Richard Campbell, Better Know a Framework. So your Better Know a Framework uh, factoid for this show is actually a system diagnostics class. Ooh. System diagnostics being the namespace for all the goo for like processes and, and log files and debugging and all that stuff is. So there's a great uh, class in here called file version info. And that's what you can use to get version information from files. So the constructor takes a file path, file name, and uh, then you can do stuff like get the file description, get the ver- the file version resource, which has all of the stuff in it. But then you can get things like the comments, the company name, the file build part, the major part, the minor part, the private part, and uh, whatever the private part is. The internal name is debug, is patched, is pre-release, is private build, is special build, the language, the legal copyright, legal trademarks. All of that stuff, and it goes on and on and on. So all of that meta information that's associated with a version of a particular file, assembly, or whatever it is, uh, you can use uh, uh, the System Diagnostics File Version Info class to get that. Cool. I got to read Thomas Betts' email. Oh, this is funny. Uh, You know, every so often an email comes along where it's just a troublemaker. Is It's obviously he's just a troublemaker. This is actually... One of us. He's totally one of us. He's just a, (laughs) you know... I don't know if I want to make a show with the guy, but I'll happily argue an email with him. Right. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase some pieces of the email. We'll put the bits together, grab the sort of best bits. He was talking about Scott Stanfield's show, although he identified it as 224. It's actually 244. And I'll be sure to pick out the rest of the mistakes that Thomas made in this email. <laughs> well, he asked for it, right? I mean, he, he did ask for it. This is a guy <laughs> who had it coming. And, uh, okay, it started with the line, yes, that's clearly a PBY Catalina. What else would it be? Right. Uh, and even if it wasn't just saying PBY Catalina is fun, it's like owning an RX8 just for the chance to say Wankel rotary engine in polite conversation. Nice. <laughs> and he loved the Menard map, but then everybody does. Sure. That was the bits from part one that were good. In part two, so, oh, an interesting thing about this, he actually was writing this email as he was listening to the show. So the first email was maybe halfway through the show, and then in the sec- at the end of the second half, he, he sent off the other half of the email, which is interesting to actually write email as he you're couldn't, listening. He couldn't wait. Couldn't wait. Obviously inspired. Yeah. And so, so other comments from the second email after you made fun of him because he was saying, Dear Richard, since Carl doesn't read email anymore. Right. And at the end of that, he asked for some swag. So I sent him a reply that said, <laughs> you know, I was about to send you some swag, but since I don't read email anymore, I don't, I didn't hear you ask for it. So. All right. The other points, which gets to the real meat of this email. Yeah. Uh, about Grok Talks, because Scott Stanfield, the producer of the Grok Talks, I've watched about half of these before, some of them a few times. After a recent .NET Rocks episode about continuous integration, I again watched Joe Shirley's Grok Talk, which covered FXCOP, NUnit, NANT, and CruiseControl.net. Yeah. Which also reminded me that Joe was the guy I talked to at TechEd05 about the then brand new Microsoft Certified Architect program. Is this a possible future show topic? Mm. And my answer is yes, twice. Mm. Because yeah. I think we should do uh, more discussion. Actually, I think we should just go get Joe to talk about FXCOP, NUnit, NANT, and CruiseControl.net together anyway. That'd be awesome. 
But the whole discussion about the Microsoft Certified Architect program is an interesting one. I think we should probably just bring that up and uh, maybe we'll rope Clemens in. He was one of the early adopters of that program. See what we get. I'm sure Clemens would appreciate the uh, the exposure. Yeah. He's a little now overexposed he's... already, but, you know. <laughs> well, now that he's on the dark side. Right. Uh, Clemens then, Vasters, who we're talking about, by the way. Clemens Vasters, yes. And then Thomas really goes off the deep end with consanguineal. You like that one. I love that word. Consanguineal meaning of the blood. Yeah. Right? Blood relative is consanguineal. And then his line is, not since Calipigian have I learned a word that can be used to easily impress and offend at the same time. <laughs> Good line. And just to define these sort of, obviously, consanguineal I've defined, Calipigian, which, again, Thomas misspelled. He put one L and three I's in it. It's actually two L's, two I's, and a Y. And Richard wouldn't have brought that up had you not been so... Uh, detail-oriented. Yes. If you're going to play the detail game, kiddo, look out. <laughs> At Calipigian defined it as having well-shaped buttocks, as in, <laughs> it has been a long time since Carl Franklin has embraced the Calipigian ideal. Ah, very good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and finally... I think I've just been insulted. There you go. <laughs> yes. But in a multisyllabic word that most people don't know, it's a, got a Greek root. It's in, in relation to Aphrodite. Wow. You know, you're the, you were the first person who ever used the word kerfuffle in my presence. Oh, yeah, well, now you're getting into whole Canadianisms, and that's a whole other issue. Is that a Canadianism? I uh, mean, absolutely. It's in the dictionary. You know, it's in the <laughs> Oxford Dictionary. Kerfuffle. You know, it's sort of a what do you what would you call it? Like a sort of a a, a row. You know, a row, a mess, a mess. You know, yeah, caused by something. Uh, Shall we say innocent, maybe? Yes. In, in, in the Microsoft space, you'd call it an issue. An issue. Yes. There was an issue around that. Yeah, you kicked him in the head. Uh, no, actually, it was a kerfuffle. Can I get to the final point of Thomas's email? Yes, please. Do. All right. Finally, thanks for another great non-tech show. After enough coverage of ORM for a comsci student to write a senior thesis, it was refreshing to have a show that was like listening to a bunch of geek chatting about cool stuff. Yeah. I think the two episodes per week format has definitely allowed a better balance of both content and guests. This is what we're saying. Yes, sir. .NET rocks like .NET itself is not just about technology. It's a way of thinking about technology and how it can be used to solve problems. Well, that's why the, the subtitle is, you know, the Internet Audio Talk Show for .NET developers. It's yes. for .NET developers doesn't necessarily mean every show is .NET. And I really enjoy talking to guys like Scott Stanfield and doing sort of non-tech shows like that. I just worry that our listeners don't agree I don't know how many of those to do. Well, I think, you know, the the yardstick that we have been using all along is, if you're a .NET developer, would you be interested in this conversation? I think right. since we are .NET developers and we're interested, that's pretty good, uh, pretty good metric right there. All right. And if you disagree, send us an email. Right. Yeah. .NET rocks at franklins.net. And if we get enough of them, you can, uh, you know, get your own show. So, <laughs> like Thomas isn't going to. No, no, no. I, I kid. That's one of my favorite things to say. You know, get your own show. Get your own show. And that's a direct ripoff of Michael Feldman, who might have ripped it off from Groucho. I'm not sure, but <laughs> probably. <laughs> okay. What's next? Code camps. Code camps. Fire up the music. 
All right, let me start the list off with the Raleigh Code Camp on June 23rd at shrinkster.com slash P-E-B. Followed by the Developer, Developer, Developer Code Camp in Reading in the UK. And that's happening June 30th, and you can read about it at shrinkster.com slash P-8-0. The Code Camp South Australia is in Adelaide. It's two days, both July 7th and 8th. And you can read about that at shrinkster.com slash PKH. And the Central Coast Code Camp in San Luis Obispo, California, is coming up September 22nd to 23rd, shrinkster.com slash PWA. And if you happen to be in Leipzig, Germany, September 24th to 28th, a whole week, week. there's the .NET Summer Camp 2007. It's for students, and it's only 10 euros. Do you have to be a student? You have to be a student. Okay. I think there's another rate for non-students. It's right. connected to a bigger show. And the info on that is at shrinkster.com slash PWB. And, of course, Greg Brill in New York City is still looking for the best and the brightest to come and work in New York for a year and live in Manhattan rent-free for a year. That's right. If you want to read more about this exciting offer, uh, go to shrinkster.com slash KH6. All right, Richard. Well, it's time to roll the tape of the ASP.NET Scalability Panel at TechEd 2007. Welcome to the .NET Rocks ASP.NET Scalability Panel at TechEd Orlando 2007. Hi, Richard. Hey, Carl. Here we are at the virtual TechEd stage. That's right. And we have a throng of people looking at us right now. Both of them. Both of them are very excited to be here. And, uh, of course, we're here to talk about uh, ASP.NET scalability with our esteemed panel of... Of ju- uh, judges. judges. I mean, we just well, came off a of speaker judges. idol. So, of course, and, it, and at least one of our fellows up here is a judge. Let's start with Steve. This get some introductions here. Steve? You're sitting in the same chair. Steve. My name is Stephen Forte. I am the chief technology officer of a company called Corzin Inc. in New York City. Prior to that, I was a chief technology officer during the dot-com era of a company called Zagat Survey, where we got one billion page views a month, unique page views a month. So that is why I'm sitting up here. I have a lot of experience with scaling, dating back to ASP Classic. Thanks, Steve. Kent? I'm Kent Alstead, chief architect of Strange Loop Networks. Uh, we're an ASP.NET-focused accelerator, and I spend pretty much... Day and night thinking about performance and scaling, which is why I'm here. Rob. Hey, how's it going? My name is Rob Howard. Uh, I'm the CEO of a company called Intelligent. We build a product called Community Server. Uh, we do lots and lots of traffic through it, so lots of thought about scalability and performance. Um, prior to starting that business, which I started three years ago, I, I worked at uh, Microsoft on the ASP.NET team, where I owned a lot of the infrastructure features like caching and, and other, other features related to getting really great performance out of ASP.NET applications. Yeah, all about scaling ASP.NET, yeah. actually. And, and now you're a regional director as well. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, we got a couple of our three RDs up here as well. And it, and it occurs to me, last time we talked to you, was here in Orlando. That's right, it was. it was. It was a Dev Connection. It was just yeah. six or eight weeks ago. Yeah, it was That's a few right. weeks ago. Right. And uh, our last panelist, but not the least panelist, Steve Smith. Hi, my name is Steve Smith, and I'm also a regional director, and I've... Uh, I run ASPAlliance.com, and I also run the largest .NET-focused advertising network, um, which serves about 100 million ads per month. Uh, so that's pretty much where I get most of my scalability experience, as well as from uh, past consulting on a bunch of Fortune 500 clients. You know, i got to admit, when I first got into the, the web stuff, when the web stuff was first happening, and we were all writing little websites, <clears throat> and people started talking about scalability, 
I got to admit, I, my first reaction was scalability. That's an issue. Mm-hmm. Why not just get faster machines? But as it turns out, the machines can't get fast enough by themselves just to, to handle the sheer number of, uh, of hits that they're getting. So this has been a, a real problem. Why is it a problem? How does scalability impact development? How does it impact the developer? I think there's some decisions you have to make when you're crafting your application as to how you're going to scale. Session is probably the most obvious example uh, where you have to decide whether or not you're going to be able to manage many servers and have a load balancer that can go to all the servers without uh, affinity or or returning to the same server and what the performance implications of that. So there's decisions that you have to make in your application from the ground up trying to decide you know, what your trade-offs are with respect to scale. And I think what I'd like to start with is just a definition from some of my colleagues here of the difference between performance and scale. Because I think that's That's, a confusing thing for a lot of people. So how about Steve? Steve, can you tell us the difference between performance and scale? One of the things I often... The panel uh, is questioning each other. That's awesome. (laughs) Kent, you could just come on over here. (laughs) I've spoken about performance and scalability many times, and one of the it's a key point of confusion because most of the time the two get lumped together. And so the the key thing here is that performance is simply talking about how fast your application works for a particular user, let's say. Whereas scalability, uh, if you have good scalability, it means you could add more resources, and as you add those, your scale goes up linearly. Or if you add more load, you can simply add more resources and you will continue to have the, the same or equivalent uh, performance. If you have poor scalability, it means that as you add more load, adding more resources doesn't help you and your performance degrades oftentimes exponentially once you reach a certain level. I'm going to add to Steve Smith's comment because you asked Steve a question and I'm also a Steve. That's true. And, um, <laughs> I asked Steve Smith a question. You did not say Steve oh, Smith. I'm sorry, Steve. I'm sorry, Steve. Was, I, I, will, oh, yeah, please. I, I will add the economics to that factor. I, I agree with everything Steve just said. However, I'll add to that as a true definition of scalability is adding more units of work and having the cost per unit of work go down. And that's actually very critical is a lot of sites back in the dot-com era had zero scale, but they had good performance at load. But then when the load went up, they actually were spending more more money per transaction. What happens when you start spending more money when you add more transactions? You go out of business. So this is a financial decision as well as a programming decision. Did you just explain the entire dot-com bust? Is that yeah. what that was? I did. Yeah. You, you come to TechEd, you can learn about the entire dot-com bust. <laughs> so right if, here I, if I get the Rose. definition correctly then, then good scaling is scaling. Scaling where, as the number of simultaneous users go up, the cost per user go down. Correct. Or at least doesn't go up. Yeah. Or if it remains the same, is that good enough? Sure. It remains the same. While maintaining the same performance. And maintaining the same performance. And maintaining the same performance. Okay. And it goes to Carl's original point, how does this affect programming, is if you just throw hardware at the problem, you're just making poorly written code more expensive. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Often without considering the architecture, as you add those users, the cost goes up. Is now, it, well, you know, Kent, I, I saw something, I, I can't remember where it was that you had written that said, um, scale, w- w- the problem of scale happens to a successful website, and then your developers all of a sudden find that they're spending less time developing new features and more time just fixing the site to, to scale. And yeah. so you you sort of have version one, and it sort of sits there for a long, long time. I, I would argue that often when you're developing an application, the problems that you encounter in terms of designing 
are more difficult in when you're solving the scaling problem than they are when you're solving your business problem. Often the business problem is easier to solve than the scaling problem. So the developers, you know, when they do a great job addressing the business, you know, they've got a, they've got a business application that satisfies their users. But then when they get successful, which is, hey, that's great. Everybody, we're successful. We're getting load. Then the problem, which turns out to be much more difficult in the end, logically and technically, uh, comes to hit them and they, they need to be prepared. Sometimes the development community that, you know, is developing that product isn't capable of understanding how to move it or how to change it. There's a, it's a difficult problem as it starts to hit you. And, yeah. and the teams normally, the number of features that are going in just bogs. Right. You know, you, you, you have to focus on, you know, not the, the customer. The only difference they're going to see is it, it goes faster or it handles. Sometimes it doesn't even go faster. It just handles more users. And the only person who knows is the guy running the site, right? Right. right. And the challenge is, too, that these are a lot of decisions you have to make early on. You, right. you can't make them later on once the application is But don't is we out, always end up making them later on? already. Right. I, I, this, is a, this is a great point, Rob. I mean, there is a particular pro-scaling programming style. I think there is. I think there's a lot of decisions you can make early on in how you're writing your software um, that are investments in the future almost. But, and, I mean, the interesting twist of this is why don't we just always do that? It's not as easy. Ah, okay. Right. Or as obvious. Right. It's an unobvious way to code. It's a harder way to code. It is a harder way to code. So I, I'm, I'm getting that. You can't there use some of the common, uh, for example, a, a great example, in my opinion, is session state. Session state's a, a great feature of ASP.NET. Um, the not problem, that you're biased or anything. Yeah, not that, not that I'm biased. Yeah. I used to work on the session state feature. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as you look at writing really highly scalable applications, session state is something that can become a bottleneck. And right. so... Um, when you're initially designing an application, if you have the opportunity to design around session state and not use it, that can be a boon later on. Now, didn't, I mean, didn't you, yes. being the guy who worked on ASP.NET and on that feature, solve this problem for us? Because all we have to do is change the web config file and we can move session state out of the web server and onto SQL server. SQL or SQL. True, but uh, there's a lot of features that are designed for kind of a specific target audience. And um, session state's it's a great technology. It's going to work really well for most people, but there's a, a kind of a level of use where it, it starts hindering performance. The way, really? se the way session state's designed, um, if you look at out-of-process out of process session state when it's talking to a SQL Server database, um, when the request comes in, it'll go out to the SQL Server database, request the session state data, lock the data, send the data back. When the request from ASP.NET is done, it's coming back out the pipeline, it'll actually go back out to the session state store again release the lock and, and rewrite the data. That's okay. two SQL server requests on every single page view. Um, that can add a lot of uh, a lot of impact to the scalability of your application. So there's things you can do to get around that where you can you can put you can put session state into a read-only mode. Um, there's also a lot of other smarter things you can do, but uh, you have to be aware of what those decisions are and, and how they're going to impact you later on. Well if the prescription is don't don't use session state and don't use all view state and all these great features. Are the developers out there now who have been sold on ASP.NET because all these great development features now going, what? I can't now, you know, are you, when, you, when you're making that decision, are we really saying don't use these things? No, I, I think we're not saying don't use these things. I, I, think, I think what you're, you're always having to do is make decisions about where you're using different technologies to solve different problems. Session state is a great feature. It's, it's going to solve a lot of problems that a lot of developers run into. But you have to realize at some point, you're going to get diminishing returns on the use of session state. And that's where I think technologies like what you guys are doing with StrangeLoop come in um, to really help get back some of that, uh, that scalability um, out of your servers. 
it's also it's also good to consider that most of the applications that people are writing are line of business applications where you know you're only going to have n users. They're not writing MySpace or Google or eBay or something true. where it's, you know, there's only a few of those out there that are getting billions of hits per day. I think that's actually another problem that a lot of developers run into. They, they start with the idea, hey, I'm going to write, I'm going to write the next MySpace. Yeah. And I start designing for the next MySpace. And now right. you have this big complicated mess of software that is, you know, really isolated. It's in theory easy to kind of divide out parts of the architecture and run it on different hardware or different servers. Um, but now you've overly complicated your design. So I mean, there's, there's I mean, it's a business off. angle that Steve often well, picks up on. That also comes back to the original argument that we were making that this is a design decision up front. And one of the things that we do is say, you know, when you design an application, you design it for performance, scalability, and extensibility. And sometimes you, you'll know where you're going to scale to. As, as Steve said, sometimes you're only going to have a, a couple dozen end users, and it might be an internet application. Then sure, use the session state. And then Rob's point is very key is we're not saying, Carl, not to use these particular features. We're saying use them wisely. So don't just, you know, don't well, What does that mean, use them wisely? When you say to a developer, use session, but use it wisely, what's the, the next sentence after that? Which you were just probably about to say. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's knowing the, I mean, I, I think it's knowing what the impact is of using that feature. Uh, whenever I sit down with a customer and we start talking about performance or scalability problems they're having, the very first thing I do is get out SQL Profiler and look at how they're talking to the database. And oftentimes you're like, wow, you know, you're going to the database 35 times on each request? That's a lot. You're paying a lot of performance there. <laughs> oh, you must be running SharePoint. <laughs> so, so, oh, did I say that out loud? Gee. So it's not just about session. It's about you know, your, your data. It's about caching. It's about using all of the scalability well, tools and, 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 and to your point, Carl, you mean... Rob, didn't you just change up the conversation there? I thought we were talking about ASP.NET. Where'd the database come into this? I think the database is probably, um, from what I've seen, is, is the number one bottleneck of, of most software applications. For scalability? Um, there, there's two areas that I, that I commonly see, and, and you know, if you guys have anything yeah, to add, please do. But you're right the, on. the two common areas that I see of, of being performance bottlenecks for most applications are the database and overly used web services, where people are designing web apps that, all the web app does is talk to web services to kind of assimilate all the information and display it. Okay. Um, yeah, any kind all of, those out-of-process calls are expensive. Exactly. Steve's any, nodding his head here. Any, Steve Smith. Anything out-of-process is going to be a bottleneck. And right. uh, the, the fewer of those you can do per request, the better. And if you do have to do them, you should do them uh, asynchronously uh, so they can happen at the, uh, concurrently and not have to wait one after the other for them to occur. Yeah, to me, ASP.NET asynchronously seems like, wait a second, don't I need to get the, the response back? But you're saying you're using asynchronously because you've got 35 requests on that page, run them all at once. And yes. wait until they're all done. It, exactly. Anytime you can do stuff in batches where you're making chunky calls instead of chatty calls. For instance, let's say you really do need 35 different things from the database. Well, if you know that this page is going to make 35 calls to the database, what you want to do is try and make a store procedure that goes and grabs those 35 things and brings them back in one call. Or ideally, do that once and cache it. And then don't talk to the database for another five seconds, ten seconds, an hour. It depends on how, how rapidly you need that data. He said the C word. Yeah. There's a very subtle thing that you said just a minute ago that, that I picked up on, which was anything that's out of process is yeah. going to hurt performance. Absolutely. Did you say performance or scalability? Yes. Well, usually both. Okay. But so one of the features the that Richard yeah. talked about uh, for, for accessing session state was to move it out of process. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the only answer to scalability is to go out of process. Oftentimes you have to trade performance for scalability. Right. So you'll have the best performance with session, for example, if it's in proc. 
So as long as you only have one server and you have, that's sufficient for your needs, always use the in-process session because it will give you the best performance. It'll take 10 milliseconds to get the data. Right, but as soon as you really put it on... If yeah. you really want to scale, you go to a SQL server. Right. So saying something like, you know, anything out of process is going to hurt scalability, you need to go out of process sometimes Some, to yes. be scalable. You've got to be true. very careful. You're, wa- very you're counting the number of times on your hands that you go out of process yeah. in one request. Right. In and other words, and if, you're it's looking not to, sc- if it's not adding to the scalability of your site, you shouldn't do it, perhaps. It's just very expensive. You you yeah. you want to you want to go out for that data and try to bring it back into the process space of the application server when appropriate, and then continue to access it from there until you have to go back out of process again. The I think one theme that people should realize is that when we're talking about performance and scale, most of the time we're talking about more complex applications. We're adding code. And, Unfortunately, and hence, we're adding to, some. To design. Rob's point, or maybe maybe it was Steve's point of. It's harder to write scalable code, That's which is why people don't do it by default. And, it, and then and I was going to try to get to the business case uh, on Steve Forte's point of view here, which was I write my code as quickly as I can because I don't know that my app is going to succeed in the marketplace. And it's about when I'm trying to make a business case for my app, I need as many features as I can produce as quickly as possible. Right. And I'm not going to worry. I don't care about scalability right now because if I don't survive, I'm not going to need to scale. That's very That's true. true. But so that what also you means descri- described as a prototype. Yeah. Well, except that I put it in the field to find out if it's going to survive yeah. and make you, some money. You've got a, you've got a working prototype. Yep. And I think that you can't make a lot of those decisions about um, kind of the uh, how the application is going to work until you have that working prototype out there and you can see, okay, for this page that gets 60% of the traffic of my site. Um, it also is using, you know, 12, 15 out-of-process calls for a web service, for the database, or for other things. Now, what, what can I do to go into that, that, app, that, that page and start doing some optimization? Now, so getting back to the reality of the situation, am I ever going to design an application upfront for scalability? Do I know I'm MySpace, MySpace when I begin? Don't MySpace I have to put it out there and no. then get my butt kicked? But there's different levels well, of scalability. I mean, what... What Rob brought up is a lot of people start coding and build a very behemoth big application, make all these out-of-process calls, assuming they're going to be the next MySpace. But they can start with it with scale in mind and right. do the right things and then actually approach it in an incremental process that when you do scale out further and further, becomes easier, not harder, to actually perform. Now let's talk about the tool sets. Let's talk about the things that we can do. Let's start with just what's right there in .NET. What's there in ASP.NET? that you can use, like even as far as the diagnostic tools, uh, scalability tools, techniques. Let's just start one of the, talking about One that. of the key things that you want to use if you're concerned at all about performance and scalability is some kind of a load testing tool. If you're lucky enough to have the team system and the test uh, suite for that, you can use their load tests and see basically how your web application performs under load. Um, if you're still using .NET 1.1, you can use Application Center Test, which shipped with 2003 Architect. Mm-hmm. Um, does roughly the same thing. It doesn't have something as the bells and whistles. Mm-hmm. But this is the by far the best way to tell. You know, the question you asked earlier is, how do I know if I'm using Session wisely? Yeah. Well, take your application and test it, and test it with 10 users and see how it does, and then test it with a thousand users and see how it does. Um, and that's really the only way you're going to know um, whether or not that's going to be your bottleneck. And the bottlenecks don't happen. Linearly, in other words, they can be exponential sometimes. Oh yeah, you'll hit so, a wall. Yeah, well, so I, you have to test with varying degrees of. You know, when we talk about testing and scale, I, I think 
at least the, the biggest challenge that I've, I've seen is ASP, ASP.NET by itself and the .NET framework and writing code, you can get that to perform really well. You can get it to, to work really well for you. Um, the, the point where I always see the hardest problem in solving scale, true scalability is between your application and whatever data that you're storing or talking to. Um, yeah. the, the biggest struggle that we have in some of the applications that we run right now is how do I make how do I take my the, the type of scale I can do with my web server where I can do farms, I can do nodes, I can do all kinds of creative things, um, but how do I now get the database to scale in a similar pattern? But, yeah, and databases naturally don't scale that very way. Very hard. Exactly. We were always focused on store the piece of data once in one location, which means it's pretty much on one platter somewhere right. on my database. Right, we don't have a good distributed database solution out there yet. Right. But is is there is there any good resource do you think for people to you know where's where's the guidelines you know I, it it feels to me like there's some guidelines that we could be using in terms of transactions per second in terms of page sizes in terms of latency there, do, do you guys you, so know? you're asking Kent what I'm, a good... I'm asking I'm doing your job again asking okay. the panel yeah, you, you know you're, if, you, if you guys think there's, that there's a uh, there's a patterns and practices book on ASP.NET performance and scalability. That is awesome. It, everybody should read that if they're at all interested in the topic. And I didn't write any of it, and I don't get any money for it. That's from Microsoft? <laughs> it's Microsoft Pressbook, yeah. Okay. Okay. And the Patterns and Practices group is the, concerned with finding, you know, doing research into finding the best way to do something. So that you could probably consider that an authoritative source. Definitely, yeah. yeah. I think for most people, it's pretty expensive endeavor to find out how their application scales. Well, the, re the reality of setting up a load test lab and load testing your application, it's not a, it's not a small thing to do. Yeah. It's, a, it's no. a pretty big job. And it's expensive. But you with, need the hardware we have to be what, dedicated With to virtualization, it. it's not as hard as it was in the past. So it really is not. I don't think money should be an excuse because the amount of money to fix this problem later in development cycles and hardware is going to be exponentially more expensive than actually solving the problem up front. I believe firmly in the daily build. I think everyone else on stage with me also believes in the daily build. I think everyone in the audience believes in the daily build. I think... I think I got distracted because Kim Tripp, I was going to use her name in vain, but uh, Kim Tripp was waving to me in the audience. I know she believes in the daily build, but as part of the daily build process, early on, you actually need to test for scale. And that's one of the, the cardinal sins. I know this because I made that mistake when I was working at a dot-com, and we didn't test for scale until we were about two-thirds done. And we re realized we had to go back and take different approaches in our architecture and our coding. One of the there well, there are service companies out there that do that. That you can hire to come in and test your app if you don't want to do it yourself. There's always a well-paid sure consultant somewhere. Yeah. yeah, there's plenty of consulting shops that will be glad to help you with so that. So that's a that would be the job of a consultant. There isn't a aren't companies that you know of that are set up specifically for that. Yeah, I, I don't know. There, there's also you know in in Vancouver where we're from the BCIT. There's there's different schools that have labs that have okay. you know, welcomed people you know into them to to help that. We have a lab, and I I'll, I'll tell you when we talk to our customers and say that we can. You know, load them up with thousands of active users, and you know, do complex scripts. Normally, they you know they take us up on it. They're very, very interested. So, I, I think if you have an application, you should start exploring the resources in your city for getting that done. I know Microsoft offers them as well. So, what, yeah, well, I was just thinking, what are the products we're using to test for scale? Is it Wast? Well, we well, use a product by by Spirant. It's it's uh, called an Avalanche. It's a hardware load generator, but we're we're looking to generate you know a, a million concurrent our million active sessions so you know we were we were really trying to uh, you know blast it up into the stratosphere uh, and we found that the only way we could do that in a w without having a, too many machines was to actually go to a you know a hardware solution 
Uh, but I find that scripting that is very difficult. It's not designed for ASP.NET. And as a result, we spend a lot of time developing our scripts, which okay. it's, a, it's a real trade-off. We can get the load, but we, we spend you know, an inordinate amount of time to create a script that's valid. Okay, so we've tested. We know that we have a scalability problem. Now, what are the tools built in ASP.NET to help us deal with that? What do we do, Rob? We because do? we're blaming you. It's your fault. And he <laughs> Why is it my scale? fault? He's blaming you. wrote it. And he's blaming the database. I didn't write it. <laughs> with, with Kimberly Trippany on it, he's blaming the database for uh, ASP. I, yeah, I heard <laughs> that. Yeah. It's the database. Yeah, I, I, I think there's... Want to blame the database again, Rob? Yeah. <laughs> I think, th I think there's, there's three kind of designs that you, you see for how people build web apps. Um, there's, there's kind of the... the, the the all-in-one server design, which says, you know what, I'm going to write an app. It's going to run all on this one server. I've got the database on this server. I've got, or, or maybe the database on a separate server, but I've got the web app. Everything kind of running on that one box. Yeah. Um, the second type of design that we see a lot is is the the server farm or kind of clustering design, right. um, which is by far the most common. Um, and then the third type of design is, is the um, like what companies like Match.com do, where they have the server farms that talk to a back-end with distributed read-only and write databases, um, which gets much more complicated. Read-only databases? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But I, I, think, I think if most people can... Uh, I think uh, one big mistake a lot of people do is that when they sit down, they write their app, they say, I'm, gonna, I'm designing my app on my desktop with my database right here, and I'm going to write the code based upon the way um, you know, this configuration is set up. Whereas if you, if you can write for a web farm environment from the beginning... Um, at the end of the day, that, that'll give you a lot of benefits at the end because you can um, then just start distributing out some load over the, over the web servers as your site grows. The third, the third where you have um, a third architecture configuration I see a lot of now in some of our larger customers is a scenario where you have multiple um, replicas of a SQL Server database that act as read-only stores that just serve content. Um, and then you have... A, a, a one or two write-only databases that accept writes of data uh, from from the application and then publish that data back out into the into the read-only SQL Server databases. Those are on the extremely high-end sites, um, and I'd say those are you know less than 500 sites of, in the whole world. So, are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates: RAD controls for ASP.NET, RAD controls for WinForms the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of Rad Controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, Rad Controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting, the product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. 
And I'm not throwing the database under the bus before Kimberly walks up to me afterwards. And yeah, I would point out. Uh, Kim, I'll hold him down. I'll hold him down. I think, Give I think Kim the mic. I want to hear from Kim. I, I brought a people, Kim mic out into the audience the here. Go ahead, Kim. I think it's, yeah, I know you've been faking your finger at us for a while now. Microsoft has made it really easy to work with the database. Yeah. And thereby it makes it really easy for the developer to kind of forget about the impacts of what it means when they actually go to the database and ask for information. Now, are we that, sure we want to give Kim Tripp the mic? Because it's only an hour show. <laughs> oh. Kim. No, I, I was just wanting to say hello to everyone. Serious trouble just even swinging by here. I knew that. But I, I was just listening, and I, I think you guys are totally correct. People that don't look at how the application is going to scale are going to run into problems later. If you don't design for performance, if you don't know a little bit about what the internals of SQL Server are, I mean, that's what we focus on, Paul and I. So, you know, in terms of the way that your data is going to be stored and be used, if you want to make it scale, you have to know how things are going to work with more than just one user. You need yep. to know the impact of concurrency and locking, the potential for blocking. You have to know that you can't be doing table-level locks on everything, even though you're the only one on the database, right? It doesn't hurt you now, but it's going to seriously hurt later. If you don't have indexes, you might escalate. I mean, there's, there's lots of issues. And and yes, it is a one-hour show. Yeah. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> let, me, let me give you a good example. Like, uh, here, here's, a, here's a great example. You've got a, um, so, some data in a database that's pulling back some posts or some, some kind of information that you're displaying in a grid. And most developers will look at that grid and go, cool, I can do paging, which the ASP.NET grid just supports out of the box by default. Right. I'm going to turn that on. And I've got 1,000 records. I'm going I'm to do some load testing against that. Performance looks awesome. Uh, and I've got paging. So... I think that I'm only pulling back the data that I need and displaying that information in the page. Just as stuff shows up on the page. And now, you know, now I'm, start, now I'm starting to pump data into that application. I've gone from 1,000 records to 10,000 to 100,000 to a million. And my app, the performance is just totally degraded. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is the way the data grid does paging is it will actually go connect to the database. It will pull back all the data and then discard everything except for the 25 or 10 rows or however many you want to display. So whereas previously you were pulling back a thousand records at a time, now you're pulling back ten thousand, a hundred thousand, however many, and people just don't realize that things like that are happening to their app. Yeah, who wrote that? Because we got to find that guy. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's <laughs> also a pet peeve of mine because there's two things that come back: is you have all that view state and you have a, a larger HTML payload. So you you always want to get that page as small as possible. And then to Rob's point on the database side, it's so easy on the database side to to actually limit the number of records that are going to come down inside right. of a stored procedure. So you really, as this goes back to your point, Carl, I said use the tools that, that were given by Microsoft wisely. Right. Here's a perfect example of something that's out of the box, works great with small amounts of data, but once you're going to a few hundred, you know, a few hundred rows in reality, you really need to then reconsider kind of working around some of the defaults. So uh, what, let me ask this question of you because I've actually run into this before. Caching is obviously one of those things that can really help you and it can make you very frustrated as well because of concurrency issues and all those things. But there is a cache object in ASP.NET. And if I have, whether it's a data set or whether I have my own data structures and in, in objects and collections and things like that, let's say I've got a whole bunch of data that's pretty much read-only. It isn't going to change very often. Maybe it changes once a day. So I load that up at the beginning of the application lifecycle and I put that in the cache object. Is the what's better? Is the performance gain that you get from that going to outweigh any problems you have with 
concurrency around reading from that object from all these different sessions? Oh, definitely. The yeah. performance will be awesome because you're not hitting the database for all that data. And if, as you say, it never changes, there's no concurrency issues to worry about. There's, you're not going to have an issue where you have... Concurrency uh, oh. meaning in memory is what I meant. The, yeah, just you have the, the threading issues. issues. That's yeah, the it's, number it's not a problem one at all. Way. Not That's a the number one Dollar way. for dollar caching is the yeah. best way to improve performance. Yeah, that, that was the C word I pointed out earlier. Is we, that the way when it comes to scalability? It's all about the cache? Is that the well, yeah, it's, the not necessarily the, the ASP.NET cache object, but some kind of caching, yes. I mean, if your application aggregates from web services, you don't want every page to have to go call all those web services. You want to be calling all those web services on some Windows service or scheduled job and caching those results in the database or in a file system or somewhere in memory. But it's not the ASP.NET cache at that point, but it's a cache in that right. it's a copy of the data that isn't the real source, but it's more readily available to you. Right. So caching I, sounds great. What are the, well, okay, go ahead. I, I wanna, what are the issues? I want to point one? out that <clears throat> caching is the number one way to accelerate server-side performance. Okay? Yes. And you got to take a bigger look. There, you, you gotta, how long is your JavaScript taking to render on the, on the client? You know, I've, I've seen horribly slow JavaScript. How I've big seen is a your project payload? that was canceled yeah. because the JavaScript, yeah, the JavaScript was so slow it just didn't work. I mean, uh, and, and uh, you know, the people running the application didn't know because it returned the JavaScript very quickly, by the right. way. You know, it just took forever to render. But it still seems like we're bumping up against performance, not scalability here. Well, I think that what I'm trying to point out is that there's, you, you have to take a bigger look. You have to, you know, often latency in the network is also critical. So your payloads are really important to you. A uh, number of round trips become important as, you know, your, your time to, uh, Live is, is increasing. And right? then there's so, the invalidation issue as well. Exactly. So I think that you need to, when you look at performance and scalability, you, you need to consider, is my problem only on the server? And, and sometimes, I mean, most of the time it is. Most of the time it is. Okay. And especially as load increases, you know, normally the, the server side becomes the problem. Because the okay. number of browsers is going yeah. up. They're all probably doing the same yeah. amount of work and, they've yeah, always done. There's only done. one exactly. on each machine, and so as your right. load goes up, you're not experiencing the problem there. But I, I do think it's important to step back and, and kind of take a look at not only the server side and the equation. How long are things taking on the client to render? How much payload is it going across the network? Right. How many round trips? If my, if my, if my servers are in, in America and my uh, client is in China... And I've got 50 images, you know, even 304 messages start taking a long time to draw the page. So not only do you need to consider the server side, I think you need to, you know, consider the end-to-end, -end, really the load time for the client in terms of performance becomes critical. So you, you need to maintain a, a good performance and then scale. And that, you just, I don't want everybody to be only myopic on the server side. There, yeah. there is another parts of the equation that have to be considered you know, and, and just make sure you factor that into your thinking. To add one more thing, he, as he was saying, you, you want to consider the client as well as the server. Um, you can't just look at any one part of your application. When you're talking about scalability, you're mainly you're concerned with the total throughput. So think of it like a, a pipe that water is flowing through. You've got a big fat pipe at one area, and you've got a real thin pipe at another area. Wherever it's thinnest, that's your bottleneck. By definition. Right, sure. And no matter how fat you make the pipe somewhere else, if you still got a real thin bottleneck at any point, that's going to limit the total amount of, of requests, the total amount of throughput you can put through. So the science of, of tuning something for scalability is simply a matter of finding the bottleneck and then increasing the resources there so that you can force more through it. And all that does is move the bottleneck somewhere else. So there's always a bottleneck somewhere, and you're just moving it from place to place, trying to get the biggest overall pipe. 
And I think this is interesting because, Kent, um, your company has actually developed something quite remarkable in terms of uh, dealing with this problem. And, you, and I think, so that's why I think you're pretty qualified to, to sit on this panel. Tell us what this technology is. Uh, we build a technology that's a, a hardware solution that sits between the web servers and your load balancer. Uh, to We watch traffic and accelerate it. We offer session solutions. We offer stripping view state. We offer cache wrappers and invalidation. Uh, we offer in-network in caches, so uh, automatic output caching in a sense. Um, really, what our premise is that the, there is a lot of difficult code that uh, you have to write to deal with scale. And there's a lot of people, who, unfortunately, who get into a position where they haven't made the considerations up front and they need a little bit of reprieve, and we are trying to offer that for them. And in your testing, you found that the, the, what you were talking about, the client-side stuff, actually is taking an inordinate amount of time. And well, by caching all that, taking all that view state and all that goo out that goes to the client, what kind of performance are you well, seeing? Well, I, I, think, I think that where you increase your performance when your bandwidth is slow. In, in, the case of ban in the case of view state, you're just you're reducing the payload size. Yeah. And, you know, if you're using a lot of third-party controls, uh, the view state can get large and it can be a problem. And really what we're trying to do is say, look, at ASP.NET has a lot of great controls. It has a lot of great productivity features. Um, let's, let's let people use those as much as possible and not have performance considerations hinder them. I think that you can't always make the best choices everywhere, and it's sometimes very expensive to change your code, and we're just trying to offer you know, another solution than changing your code. I know a lot of people, if they didn't have view state, period, and would, you know, they would like to use some of, the, some of the grid controls, some of the things out there that you know, are, are really cool. They're very interactive. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, you can go look at the companies. They're, they're doing amazing work with uh, you know, rich, rich clients, and unfortunately... I know a lot of the companies that we talk to just can't, they just don't even consider that because it's just too heavy and they can't use them. So again, we're trying to again, bring that me, back. Let me try to get the, some sort of number out of you because you it's pretty get it. incredible. But. Um, we find that we can reduce bandwidth between, I mean, in, with view state by 40% roughly, um, with compression and view state, you know, 67 to 75% now on average we're getting. Um, a lot of the time it's, you know, browser caching, not, you know, not uh, getting 304 messages coming back, you know, letting, don't call back for images a second time. Uh, a lot of very methodical work goes into performance, and you can get amazing gains. I mean, the difference between a tuned application. I think it's important to understand that we don't offer magic. We offer the things that you can do that these guys have done to their applications. You're just putting it in a we, box. We just, try to, we just yeah. try to deliver the same architecture in a different structure, that's all. And but the, is, the solutions are identical, so I, we're not offering no, 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 you know, some sort of new sure. technique. It's, sure. it's encapsulating what well, these what guys are saying. What we've been talking about right now is between the, 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 the point of the server and the client. That's where the performance is. In are, some, are you talking also, does your, does your technology also work on the... On the server side, yes, it does. We offer, we wrap, you know, the database provider to deliver caching to bring things in in process. Uh, we offer, you know, as soon as we have in in process non uh, non affinity uh, session, that's a pretty big deal. We're you know faster yeah. than state server, not as fast as in proc, but you know it's a 
It's a, it gives you the ability to now choose to use session and grow a little bit more. You know, there is still limitations. Like all these things are still true. We're just trying to push the boundaries. I've always had a sense that what Strange Loop offers is really pushing the bar further out so that you could spend, delay that optimization cycle longer. I think okay. that, you know, I, I've, I've been in these guys' shoes for, you know, developing applications, and there's lots of toil in, you know, adding that logic to your application. I, I guess, the, for me, the code gets more complicated. And if the goal, like a lot of people out here, the problem is that the business guys often, they, you know, that you, you mentioned it, it's a prototype application. Well, uh, my guess is that the people who are funding the applications you know, that, that, that right. is a kind of a very developer-centric They don't notion, think it's a prototype. Right? That, That's and, the app. No, and, that, right. and I, I think it's they true. It. You're right that yeah. it is a prototype. And the problem is that, that, you know, the people who have paid for that so far, I mean, that's the application. It's out there. I mean, they're not, you're not willing to kind of, you know, make that mental switch. We, and well, I, what and happens I, is a lot of times a prototype just evolves into the application. It becomes the app. They always start with the best of intentions, but it always comes back to that. And then... You have things like the, the view state that comes on down that Kent was talking about, and you've taken some shortcuts, and now it's huge. So then you turn, so what do you do? You turn it off, and then you sacrifice the feature. You said, okay, we'll go back later and do some tricks that I've learned on the blogs and everywhere else that can, I can actually go down and do it differently. And then you never get back to it because you're too busy building features. You're too busy, busy building the next rev of the site. Okay, let's change gears a little bit here because I think it's one of the things that people often struggle with, which is how do I know... I have a scaling problem. Is the only way I know that my customer is calling me saying the site is too slow? Isn't there better ways to measure that? What do, what do we got to look at? Huh. We found that the round trip analytics and you know where people were at was very, that, that's a big problem in the industry. A lot of people find out that they've got a problem because their help desk and customers are phoning them saying that they have a problem. Um, and there's, you know, they haven't spent the time to do that in a lab prior to shipping. And as a result, you know, they, they find out from their customers. Um, I feel that the way to, to do that is you have to load test your application before you start. It's very difficult. There are solutions that allow you to measure, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say full circle performance in production applications. Um, you know, you can consider those as well. They're, you know, they gather metrics as your application's running, kind of hitbox-like style. They they measure you know browser load performance and post the statistics back to a web service. That can be very helpful to find out where you're at. Um, but again, it adds complexity to your application, and you know it's more IT uh, you know complexity to deal with. But it's very helpful. It tells you what's going on. Now there is a hook in the page class of the ASP.NET to persist uh, the view state data to um, um, storage medium or whatever. You get the view state data as an object. Mm -hmm. And then you can serialize that object and save it to disk or put it in a database, put it in a session, you know, something like that. Um, this seems to work well. What's the, what's the downside to that, if, the, if any? Well, logically, I don't think that that is well thought out. I mean, um, view states exist really uh, very temporarily. They're, you know, that's why they're stored in the page. They're, they're associated with a single page and only used when you post back. Yeah. So imagine that if you were going to store it in session, anytime you use the back button in the browser, you would have to have the previous view state that somewhere. That back button yeah, or, is well, the bane I mean, of our existence. Right, the, the back <laughs> button, yeah, if you can eliminate the back button from the browser, you can. You know, I'm sure a lot of these problems will Rob, go that's on. your fault too, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, you, of course, you did that. You did that. Scapegoat, so. Rob goes, it works fine on my machine. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get back to the tools for determining if you have a scalability yeah. problem. You do not need to wait for your customer to call. 
Become friendly with two free tools, Performance Monitor yeah. and SQL, you know, and SQL Profiler. Yeah. Look on the database side, look at your cache hit ratio. If you're this, you know, the cache hit ratio for those of you that don't know what it is, is what percentage of your queries are coming out of cache and what percent are coming out of disk. And that's what the cache hit ratio will tell you. That is the most important statistics for any SQL Server or database application if you're, if you're concerned with performance. And then with performance monitor, simple little things, not just CPU spikes. Look for page blocking, right? Go hit the site, go, go hit the site a number of times with a simple, you know, playback tool. You don't have to get really fancy. We were right. talking before with virtualization. You can determine with, you know, virtually for free with some of these tools, you can determine if you have page blocking and you have issues with threading. And you can determine if there's CPU spikes. So very, very early on and very, very easily, you can determine that you have scalability problems and they need to be addressed, you know, the first weeks of coding, not the last weeks yeah, of coding. SQL Profiler should be a tool that if any web developer is talking to a database, um, should have open, totally looking agree. at how they're, how they're working with their database, what kind of queries they're making. I agree. Um, if, you, if you've released a yeah. web app and not looked at SQL Profiler, assuming yeah. you, of course, have SQL Server at the back end, uh, you didn't do your job. Now that cache hit ratio is actually a number you can see on the SQL Profiler, or how do you determine that? It is an actual statistic you can see at SQL Profiler. Okay, great. So we talked about Profiler, we talked about Perfmon for, for monitoring. Uh, any other tools? I mean, those are the ones that we just got in the box. Another one that I use frequently is the, the tracing and debugging tools in system diagnostics. I make sure that every database call I write, I wrap that in a trace call. And I, you know, I compile that off when I put it out in production, but I can flip a flag and see it. And I can go hit like one page and then just view the you know, debug view um, and see every single database call that that page made. And I have some other things I'm outputting, like my view state size, my total page render size, all of those things you can get in your page and then just write them out. Ideally, just put them in a base page class, and then you can go to hit any given page you like and see what their stats are. I, yeah, I would emphasize it, that in all cases, you should use physical evidence as the basis for tuning your application. Not the phone call mm -hmm. from the CTO? Well, the number of times I see developers optimizing applications based on their intuition as to where it is slow. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I know that and They're going to worry about, you know, using, am I using an int32 or an int64? Yeah, it's just, right. yeah. I mean, you tune. Well, that really based, helps. You tune based <laughs> on physical evidence. You tune based on profiler results. You, you tune based on, I mean, I, I use a lot of code profiling. Uh, there's a, uh, Ants Redgate tool that I use, which right. you know is great for locating bottlenecks in your application code, but never, never do it on intuition. You're just wrong, unfortunately. Even the smartest people I've seen being wrong 50% of the time. It's it's terrible. At and least. So, yeah. But you know, let let's you know I can let, get the facts. Get the right. facts. Okay, web farms. When you have a web farm, when you have more than one box, all of a sudden your scalability issues are hitting you right in the face. Because not only do you have scalability issues, you have concurrency issues, you have synchronization. What, uh, having a web farm means you can't use what? What can't you do when you have a web farm? You can't use out-of-process session with objects that don't serialize. Right. Well, that's right. true. You can't use in-process caching, the ASP.NET cache, unless you're okay with those possibly being out of sync across those servers. Very right. good. So if there's multiple web servers, each they server each have their own cache. Each server has own copy of that cache, right. and they're not synchronized. Now, there's some things that will make that much better. For instance, if you use the uh, SQL cache invalidation features that are in ASP.NET 2.0, 
that makes that problem all but go away. And the point here is that one web server has an invalidation event that would invalidate its own cache, but the other web servers don't know about it. Correct. So the SQL server picks up on that and then lets everybody else know. Right, because typically you're caching the stuff from the database anyway. So when the database is updated from any source, not necessarily from your web app, it lets the servers know, either through a polling model or a push model, um, that they need to flush their caches and get their, their source data again. Well, what about uh, what about the trick I said about uh, taking the view state and persisting that to disk? That's not going to work yeah, either. It, yeah, it does not work well when you're dealing with multiple servers because if, if you're using a, a load balancer that doesn't use affinity or goes you know round robin between computers, you might just end up with a request on a you know a post on a server that doesn't have the view state that you're looking for. Isn't it really sort of ironic, maybe that you know the the tools that we would use to scale out on one box? just suddenly don't work when you have more than one box. And that's, that's why I always go back to if you're going to make decisions early on in your application, it's better to design four web farms. Yeah. Um, there's, there's not a lot of upfront cost that you have to make in that decision. There's just some other decisions you have to, other paths you have to follow that you wouldn't ordinarily do if you were writing for a single box. Should we ever use the state server option for session data? In other words, put all the session data just on one box? Or should we go right to SQL Server? You know, I, I think you're, I, some of these questions are hard because I think you're looking for like the, the, the correct, uh, uh, yeah, correct sure. answer is it the, depends? It depends. I mean, <laughs> the, the correct answer will always be different for each application. Right. I mean, there's, you should play scruples with this guy. Here. You know, there's, uh, <laughs> there's always going to be a great case where session state and state server makes sense to use in an application. Uh, I've certainly talked to a group of folks, and I'll leave them nameless because I didn't ask them in advance, that are using state server because it's faster than SQL server, right. but they also know that state server fails, so they right. have backup state servers, but since there's no automation around switching, they have 24-7 staffing with guys on pagers, and when one of those things goes down, somebody logs in from wherever they are, runs the script to switch over to the other state Single server. Point of it's, just, it's all a bunch of trade-offs. You're always yeah. having to make decisions that the, I'm going to give up X to get more of Y. The thing and that usually that's tuning the pipe, as Steve said earlier. The thing that doesn't make sense to me about state server is you have a web farm to sort of spread out the, the load. If one of them goes down, no problem. But using a state server, if that goes down, you're back to a single point of failure. The, the uh, state... Um, well, the session state part of ASP.NET is a provider model, so you can, in fact, plug in, in the later versions of ASP.NET, your own implementation for session state. There's right. third parties. One of them is, is actually here. It's called Scale-Out Software, right. and they have a distributed session solution. So, uh, for instance, your customer would be definitely would want to talk to them because basically it will distribute the cache yep. and the session to every server in the web farm, and whenever one of them changes, it just lets all the other ones know. So if that one box goes down... Everybody's checkout, everybody's uh, shopping cart doesn't go away because it's also on all the other boxes, and the next request will still find that session. So How about the strange, strange loop box? We, How we, does off, that... we offer a provider. Very, you know, a, again, we use the same model. It was, you know, very convenient. The provider model is your friend. If yeah, you know, Rob, that was a good idea. Yeah. Who thought of that? <laughs> you didn't invent. I mean, you guys certainly worked with yes. it. But the provider model basically meant third parties can insert themselves anywhere into that ASP.NET pipeline and, and help out. Yeah, the, the idea with the provider model is that developers become familiar with APIs. So like right. request, response, they're, they're, they're APIs that people have become familiar with over time. So um, the goal was to provide a, a similar familiarity with features like membership, role management, um, hopefully other features like caching, yeah, where the, the developer become, can become really familiar with how the APIs work, but underneath the covers, you can kind of swap out how the actual um, what the actual works. APIs do. Right. Yeah, we got a, just a key. question here from the audience. Get, get your name, please, sir. Yeah, my name is Joe Donnelly. Hi. Hi. How you doing? This question has to do with um, 
uh, in production. I know we've got the tools in the development environment to do profiling, to do a whole bunch of things, but um, consider the situation in production where we have an application that's running and it's consuming a whole lot of CPU. We can't reproduce it in uh, development. What kind of tools? I mean, I don't know that we want to use the full uh, injection kinds of things, but some modified form. What tools or facilities are available that are a small footprint, all right, that will allow us to at least say this method, this procedure appears to be consuming uh, a significant amount of CPU, uh, focus your attention? You can replay the logs. Is, is one thing you can do. What logs? Uh, the, the logs that are making the requests against your web server. So you can get those. You can get the logs from your web server. And I, I know the ap- I know the application. I might even know the pages, but I don't know anything more than that. It's a multi-threaded app, for example. I, I just don't know. What I'm looking for is an answer that says uh, there's some tools that will be able to actually do some live injection, either sampling or something mm-hmm. like that. The, the problem is, of course, with, with sampling anything that's running in production is you actually wind up affecting your test results because you're sampling live data. Yeah, at um, this point, it's... You, you know, you're going to have to do something like a process dump or, a, um, or, or do something where you replicate that environment locally. That's well, really the only way to get to the bottom They've tried of it. to, but they can't. Can't we use... Um, There's two solutions that I know of. Um, okay. One is ours. I mean, we actually instrument as it flows through the device... Um, we can't. We can point out which page is slow, um, not down to the routine level. There is a company that a number of accelerators are working with, whose name will come back to me, uh, that does live production analytics. And if you talk to me in five minutes after, I will have remembered it. Or as soon as I remember the name, I will. I'll give it to you. But there are companies that specialize in that. They all affect the system. I mean, one, with our system, aye, aye, aye. What, with our system, we have to turn it off when, under super scale because it's, I mean, it's, sure. so, you know, the fact is that when you're acquiring this data, uh, it affects your performance. Right. I certainly have had that experience with, with SQL Profiler that you turn Profiler on, you change the behavior of the database, plain and simple. And it's, it's also, uh, in today's day and age, it is not, in, it is not expensive. It is so it's worth the money to replicate the production environment in a exactly. staging environment. So we have the developers work on local web servers. They push it to the QA machines. The QA people then push it to a staging environment. And only the admin can actually then push it from stage to production. And our staging environment is an exact replica down to the hardware, down to the brand of network cables as the production environment. It's at the same ISP. And we can actually test the load in that particular way. So it's that used to be really, really expensive five, ten years ago. It's now really, really cheap to do that, relatively speaking. Uh, do you know of some people who are actually, and my thoughts are actually using our, um, uh, you know, Microsoft's injection stuff, like it is. I know we can command line do these things. We can pre, you know, compile the application to include the injection logic in it. Your point is, is that it's going to be a significant overhead. To it, but I do know companies. I mean, you've got CompuWare, you've got Redgate, you got those people that are touting, and I've seen it. You know, this is production stuff. This is production monitoring with a three percent overhead, and I've seen it. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, from a Microsoft perspective, what do what do we have, and what are our our solutions around production? Because we did try to reproduce it in development. We can. It's just this this production environment thing, and it'd be really nice to be able to. Uh, you have, know, you, have you tried re- replaying the yeah. production scripts against your development environment to simulate uh, the traffic? Easier said than done. 
I know yeah. it's easier said than done, but that, that's that's really the only way to get to the bottom of these, a lot of these problems because the way the developer thinks about how the, the code is being executed is often not the way that the code is actually being run on the servers. Right. Meaning that the pattern of use that the customer is going through is oftentimes, they can be doing things that you just didn't expect for them to do. Um, even you're not going to find unless you can replay I the logs. Even sampling might get me, you know, rather than instrumentation, might get me even closer. I mean, taking dumps, that's like uh, I know. shooting... I mean, not that's easy. it. Not guys, at least guys, we're just about out of time here, so I'm going to ask the panelists to just a final thought, uh, starting with you, Steve Smith. All right. Well, I just want to thank Summer. you for uh, having me here on the panel, and uh, I think performance and scalability is an excellent topic. Uh, one of the key takeaways I'd like to make is that caching is probably the number one way you can improve your performance, um, but the only way you're going to know the overall effect of any changes you're making is by actually testing them. And it'll depend on your application, what's going to make the most sense for how you tune it. Yeah. Rob. Yeah, well, thanks for having me as well. Um, I, I, the, the, the thoughts I'd kind of leave you with is that uh, ASP.NET's a, a really well-designed application um, for writing, writing your apps on top of. You can get really amazing performance out of it. There's, uh, as long as you're not kind of over-engineering, you can make ASP.NET do some incredible things. Um, and again, the, the piece of advice I'd leave you with is if you're ever looking at doing some optimizations on your server, um, I'd start with opening up SQL Profiler and seeing what you're doing on the database uh, before I'd even touch any of the ASP.NET code you've written. Okay. Ken? Uh, thank you for having me. Um, my thought would be consider, <clears throat> consider using solutions that aren't always coding. There's lots of things out there from load balancers to optimizers that can address some of your issues and often with the same architecture. So, uh, I'd, I, you know, sometimes code isn't the answer. And my second piece of advice is do not underestimate the value of physical reality. Make your decisions based on facts, and I think that will, you know, it'll, it'll march you in the direction of the real solution. Tempo, tempo. Forte, forte. I'd like to thank you all for having me as well. And the two things I'll leave you with is architect your solution with the web form and the scalability in mind, and always test your daily build. Test performance is one of the metrics. Excellent. I got one more person to thank you. That's our, uh, our member of the audience there, Joe. Thanks very much for uh, your great questions and putting my panel through the ringer. I got a, I got a little present for you, actually, because yeah, you helped out uh, make a great show. I hope you appreciate it. Just give me a sec here. Ah, yeah, it's, a, it's an Xbox 360 Elite. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> actually, Richard, Richard Kent technically asked the first question. Yeah, I, I think he should get the Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Appreciate you coming out. And I got some T-shirts for the audience as well. We'll toss it out. And uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks, everyone, for doing this. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks for thanks listening for hosting. to Dotnet Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a
Yeah, the MCC and summer. 